The sorcerer Voss is at a crossroads. She's already accepted the power of the Dark Temple, and in so doing has trapped herself here, unable to get past the mystic barrier that blocks the secret exit. The only way to break the barrier is to sacrifice a sentient, blooded creature. Her compatriots have pressed her to do exactly this, insisting that they will go forth and find someone deserving of death. But Voss is reluctant. She doesn't want to further embrace the dark power. She wants to be her better self. She's slowly realizing that death may be the better choice. Better to die being who you are than live as a dark shadow of yourself. A strange sentiment for a shadow sorcerer, but herein lies the dilemma for her. To live as a servant of Semyana or to die pursuing the light. The situation, however, is more complicated, because Voss is no mere mortal. She's an Asimar. As this battle for a character's soul plays out, more than one god is watching and willing to get involved. This is Anatomy of a Campaign. When last we left our heroes, they were still in the Oozing Temple. They had combated the undead found in the final chamber, defeated them handily, but in so doing had discovered a nasty truth, that Voss had been inoculated into the temple by accepting its dark power, and in so doing had been recognized as an emissary of Semyana, something she certainly did not want to embrace. But now the barrier that was blocking the exit, keeping those ancient undead from leaving, was now affecting her. She can't leave. But the water is rising and the temple is being flooded. There isn't all that much time before she wouldn't be able to survive down here. During the course of the battle, she was able to suss out that if they could sacrifice a sentient and blooded creature in this chamber, the barrier would be broken and she would be able to leave. Sharing that with the party, the party jumps all over it and is more than willing to go out into the world again in the time they have left, find someone, bring them back here, and kill them. They say that they can try to find someone who deserves it. We'll see how possible that is, but Voss isn't really loving this idea. The player has expressed concerns that this really takes her down a dark path that she had been trying to walk away from. It goes against what the character would truly do in this scenario. And this becomes the essence of what we're dealing with as our next session kicks off. As I prepare for what to do and how to handle this session, I find myself equal parts excited about the coming drama and the opportunity for interesting storytelling that comes out of this, but also a bit wary because this is one of those situations that can easily go off the rail. This isn't a very simple decision to pick which door they want to go through or to decide to fight or not to fight, but rather more of a metaphysical discussion about morality, about choices, and it's the kind of situation that brings out the differences in opinion between a character and a player. I think as players, there's variances of folks who are seeing this as a great opportunity for storytelling. 
And I think there may be some sentiments about, well, let's just get the sacrifice done and move on, which again goes back to the core philosophy of what this troop is supposed to be about. Are they truly mercenaries or are there more noble aspects to them? And I do think the party is split on that. From the character's perspective, it's even more stark because currently two of the four conscious characters are 1000% in the camp of getting someone to kill them. They're raising lots of points to say, we kill things all the time for less than this. Literally, if you don't kill something, it's going to mean your life. So we go, we find something worthy of killing, we bring it back here. I don't think anyone is saying that they're going to find any old person, some random villager. They're looking for someone who's either a criminal. There's been talk of actually going and trying to find things like a goblin or something like that to bring back. Something that they kill just if they see it walking down the road. And it's interesting because by comparison, the the character who actually does have to make the decision, Voss, Taylor playing Voss, they're really not sure about how to proceed. They absolutely can see that doing this is different than just getting into a combat with a goblin on the road. Let's say the party is able to bring a goblin back here. Do you just execute it? It's an interesting thing, and I, I think it's the type of situation which forces characters to really decide, for lack of a better term, what alignment are they? All of this is fantastic stuff, of course. It's the stuff great drama is made of. I'm really happy that we were able to get to something like this in the campaign, but also a bit worry because this is a very difficult decision to make. You, you have to decide that this is the type of campaign you wanted to run that's going to have these gray areas of moral decisioning. Otherwise, people can kind of decide, look, I, I just wanted a game where we kill things and take their stuff, which is, of course, very valid. In addition to all of that, the scenario before us has another pitfall, and it's the pitfall I've been obsessed with practically since the very beginning of this campaign, ensuring that there is balanced engagement with all of the players, that everyone has something to do for a lot of the session, and that no one is kind of left sitting in the sidelines. Because one of the clear outcomes or potential outcomes from this is that Voss will choose death. And per the rules of the campaign, she would go to the gates of death, which could be a very exciting scene for, for this character in this moment. But that could potentially leave a lot of folks with nothing to do while a big combat is going on in the, in the spirit world. Additionally, there's lots of potential for characters to run off and do different things. In preparing for this, I have been making lots of notes in an attempt to organize my thinking around how to kick this off and what could be the potential things that everyone's involved with. One thing I did was I listed out all of the characters and what their current trajectory is, either the thing that they're immediately facing or the thing that they're seeking. For Voss, she's trapped. As I think about it, I don't think it's as simple as the trap is the mystic barrier that's preventing her from leaving the temple. I don't think so, because there's a clear way to get past that. The party very easily could go find someone, bring them back, and have her execute them in the room. So she has the key to get out of the physical trap that's in front of her. The trap is a philosophical one. She's trapped within a moral decision. That's what's in front of her right now. Jaras has indicated that he's looking for other options. One of the details of the situation is that the room that she's trapped in actually had collapsed from a structure that is above them. 
So he's looking to see if there is some way to go up there. There might be other things to find which can help with this situation. He is looking for alternate options. He's not accepting that this is just an A or B situation. You either are going to kill someone and sacrifice them and escape, or you're going to let yourself die. He's looking for that third option, which gets them out of the horns of this particular dilemma. Mir is quite clearly going forth, and he has articulated how he's going to do it, looking for a way to find the quote-unquote sacrificial lamb. He's going to go out, he's going to connect with his uh, druid skills, the connect with the animals that are out in the, the wilderness, and see if they can let him know where there are any creatures or beings that he can grab. Constantine is in the same camp. He has argued somewhat persuasively to say, we kill things all the time. This is no big deal. This is a non-decision, I believe is something that he said. So he'll be looking to find someone rather quickly and bring them back. For Constantine, he's a professional criminal. His entire focus here is to say, we've come into this place, we have a ticking clock, and so he's just looking to get his crew out of the situation they're in, to troubleshoot it, and move on. And if troubleshooting means killing someone, he's just going to do that. And lastly, we have Bren, who's played by Joe, and Joe was not in the last session, and the the character was possessed and had actually worked against the party while under possession and is now unconscious. I would have to categorize this as one of the more challenging scenarios to prepare for. More so than ever, I'm going to have to follow my philosophy of prepare to improvise as I design my approach for tonight's session. What is my plan of attack? One of the key things that I did over the course of the past two weeks is communicate with the players out of game. And obviously one of the key conversations I had was with Taylor to get a clearer understanding of what she wants to do. I kicked that off by providing more background information about the gods and deities currently existing in the campaign world of Arabatha. To recap that very quickly, Arabatha, over the course of the past 5,000 or so years, has been monotheistic. There was one god named Anu, a name and persona that I borrowed from the Sumerian, with one major change, and a change that's not readily apparent to the players. I've been hinting at this. In some cases, I have all but said it, but I have not absolutely come out and said it. Anu was a god of justice, was a god of law, a god of society. But in truth, Anu is a god of change. He moves through cycles. And so the god for the 5,000 years the world enjoyed him was the god who is on the lawful end of the spectrum. Now he's in a period of slumber. He's vanished from the world, and for about 200 years, he's been gone. This has had catastrophic effects on the campaign world. It's had effects on society, because the empire fell without the support of Anu and the power of the clerics and divine magic. The empire was not able to hold itself together. More than that, though, the world itself is affected. Because without Anu, who is intimately connected to the world, everything has begun to slow down. There's only really two seasons now in the world. There's just spring and fall. Storms are less common. The world is no longer becoming extremely hot or extremely cold. And these are subtle changes, but it it speaks to a world that is moving towards neutrality, in a sense. As 
Anu's slumber continues, he's changing, and he'll be moving so that ultimately when he awakens, he will be an agent of pure chaos and destruction, and he'll destroy the world. With this void in place, multiple other entities, some of them gods that predated Anu and were either driven out or destroyed, some are beings that are not technically gods who wish to ascend to godhood in this vacuum, in this void of Anu. So there are demons that are attempting to be worshipped. Warlocks are far more prevalent in this world than, say, clerics. And this becomes the backdrop. There's a number of available deities. There is, of course, Semyana. But one of the other deities that has been sort of absorbed into the campaign would be Pelor, who's, I think, from Forgotten Realms. That's someone that Voss had brought up when she was creating her character to say she was caught between Semyana and a god of light like Pelor. Beyond that, though, there's a number of other gods, and one of the key gods that I've, again, brought from human mythology, Celtic mythology into this world, is Morrigan, a goddess of fate and war, but also the cycle of life and death. Because she's Celtic, she has more of a druidic bent. I find her to be just a fascinating figure in mythology, and she's someone that I believe will play heavily into this scenario. So all of that in a very short summary document was provided to all the players, but I wanted to provide it specifically to Taylor as food for thought as she's trying to figure out how she can possibly deal with this situation, and she's trying to understand what decisions she can make, what moves, what options are available to her. It's kind of an interesting and divergent process, and I'm not sure every dungeon master would agree with me, because this is a bit of metagaming. I'm kind of a fan of the, the concept that players are storytellers. Sort of addressed this in a much earlier podcast, that we're all storytellers at the table, and sometimes it seems to me to make a lot of sense to step back from your role as I'm just immersing myself into the one character as a player. And that's the only way I see things, and I have tunnel vision in that regard, that that's all I focus on. To step away from that and say, actually, I'm one of the storytellers in this game. And that's more the mode that I've engaged Taylor in to say, look, I, I want to step back from you feeling the anxiety and pressure of making the right decision with very limited information. And we had a fairly frank discussion about what's going on in the campaign and specifically with the character and what are truly the options that could play out and what would happen if she were to choose not to sacrifice someone but to face death instead. And I basically came forward and just said, look, because of who, you, who your character is, it, it would make sense that this would not be the normal version of going to the gates of death. You're an Asimar, but in addition, the gods would be watching. And if you chose death rather than to further embrace the darkness, that would have to evoke some response. So that's information and a kind of discussion that I don't think a lot of DMs would be in, in favor of because it's a, it's almost the, the strict definition of metagaming. But I think it's a kind of metagaming that when you have the time to do it and you can have the conversation can lead to greater character development. I haven't taken away the decision from her. She's still going to have to deal with the other characters as well as the realities of facing her physical death. But I've let her know that beyond that, there are more options, that in this particular case, death is not the end. But of course, it's going to be incredibly risky. Taylor is not the most tactically savvy player. 
She's new, fairly new to the game, and the, so far the only person that has survived the Gates of Death of the two that have gone at it is Bruce, playing Mir, who has decades of experience and, as I have espoused, is a bit of a tactical genius. I'm not going to go easy on anyone, but in this particular case, Taylor will be receiving, if she chooses to go down this path, she'll be receiving aid from the Morrigan. I see like a, a perfect connection between Morrigan and Voss. One of the ideas that Taylor had floated is it would be really cool for this to be the type of scenario where she embraces a god who helps her and as a result becomes their enforcer. And that's, I think, in general, the, the path that I expect this to go down. But because of the nature of this particular story and the way things are shaping up, it's hard to say exactly how it'll all work out. From the standpoint of Voss and Taylor, I think I'm good. I don't think there's going to be too many issues. I've got to simply prepare what the realm of death could look like for a part celestial or someone who's celestial touched. I think it should be pretty impressive. I think her soul will not appear simply as a moat of light in some shadowy realm. I think there's going to be some design work around a really cool setting. I'm going to be honest, I haven't done that yet. I've got a little over 12 hours before the game session. I've got some general ideas. I'm going to work out some stuff on what that should look like and what the opposition should appear to be to the person that much is given, much is expected. And so the horrors she will face are going to be greater than the horrors that the other two characters have faced. However, the powers at her disposal, her own, the power of her soul in general should be a lot more potent. But in addition, she's going to have the support of Morrigan. None of that has me overly concerned. The bigger concern is I have four other players and I want to keep them involved in this storyline throughout the session. With that, I think what I'd like to start out with, and it was an idea that dawned on me a few hours ago, is to actually have each of the characters take a moment at the beginning of the session and talk about their inner monologue. I have no idea if this is going to work. I have no idea if folks are going to feel put on the spot. So I am going to send out an email to the group ahead of time warning them about this to say, in the beginning, what I'm going to want to do is I'm going to want to get your internal take. I want you to vocalize what your character is thinking as much as you'd like to share and doesn't tip some secret hand that maybe you've got going on. But as a storytelling methodology, I think it would be helpful for everyone to hear the point of view of each of the characters. Constantine, for example, to express how he would be looking at the situation. I think it would be part frustration with Voss, you know, shaking his head in confusion of why she doesn't just say, yeah, yeah go bring me a goblin and I'll kill it. To him, this is a no-brainer. To express that, again, purely from the character's perspective, and I think for everyone to hear what each of them is thinking in this scenario will be helpful to set the stage. Also, selfishly, it's a way I feel I can mine them for uh, where their focus is and how I set up the scenes that immediately follow that. There's going to be the hunt for the sacrifice, probably with Mir and Constantine, potentially with Bren. There's going to be Jaras, who is spelunking to try to find the rest of that upper temple to see if there's something in there. 
Interestingly enough, in Jarus's background, he's seeking his father, who comes from nations within the campaign that are very Viking-focused. And in my research into the Morrigan, there is, of course, connections between the Morrigan and Norse mythology as well as Celtic mythology. There is a, there is a potential connectivity there that I think can tie these two characters together. I am trying to figure out how to solve two things. Number one, how to bring the Morrigan into this situation in ways that are not overbearing, but also ways to connect everyone into the conflict, which is essentially the conflict in the Land of Death. I'm likely going to have the Morrigan interacting with them in subtle ways as they're doing these different things. So as Jaris is seeking this upper temple, there's opportunities for him to see things, symbols, visions potentially, to, in to encounter things that start to connect this new deity into the scenario. In the case of Mir, there's a direct connection. He's a druid, um, and he's intending to go speak to animals. And he said, I'm going to talk to birds and stuff and see if they can tell me where two-legged creatures are and I can hunt them down. Well, the Morgan, of course, often appears as a black crow or raven, and I can have such a bird communicate with him directly. I had actually considered having there be uh, a child that was sort of like a child version of the Morrigan appear to Mir and be willing to go back with him and see how he would deal with that. Uh, I think that's a little heavy-handed, so I'm probably not going to go that far. What I don't want to do is have a god sort of as an NPC in this moment. This needs to be handled in a way where it's the presence of the god, not the incarnation of the god. I think that's a, a really big distinction. If I were to incarnate the god amongst fourth-level characters, things will just get really wonky and weird. I want to have symbolism appear and start to make things feel like more of a religious experience as this is progressing. I have done in the past when I've had these... The, la the last time we did a Gates of Death thing, when Calda, poor Calda, had fallen, there were two scenes going on at the same time. I'm not sure that I'm going to take that approach here. I think, though, that to have Voss's compatriots either helping her in some way or be pulled directly into the Shadow Realm to assist in the combat may be a way to go. I'm going to be thinking about that. As the Tay progresses, that is very likely to be a solution. The power of the Morgan can actually have her compatriots come in and help her. I'll have to think about what the the rules around that should be, what the risks for each of them, because I don't want to take away their choice. I think they'll have a choice to go and help. And then, of course, there's Bren. I've been very careful not to give the player, Joe, any information about what has happened so that he's coming at this literally as confused as Bren would be without knowing what had happened. I'm very likely to give him a dream-esque scenario because it's, it's sort of a gray area for me. What happens to the mind when you are possessed? Is it like you're sleeping? Is it just nothing? Would you have memory of the incidents as they happened? Or do you go someplace else? Like what... I mean, this is kind of a silly question uh, because it's all fictitious, but what happens to your persona and consciousness when you're possessed? Where does it go? Does it go somewhere? I think I'm landing on, yes, it does go somewhere, but that somewhere would be very abstract and more like a dream. There was a cool moment when Voss had engaged with the power of the temple where darkness descended on everything. And one of the visuals that I gave to Bren in that moment was making eye contact with the gelatinous cube Globogul 
It's got those these two eyes floating inside of it right before the darkness descended. Globogul is telepathic. He's also sentient, which is why I had to add the variable of blooded sentient creature so that Globogul wouldn't be an option. I didn't want to make it so easy. And I think using Globogul's telepathy, there may be a way to conduct a scene that gives Bren some potential insight into what's happening here in this temple that the others won't have. I, I may have to do this before I get their inner monologue. I may need to do Bren's dream sequence. After that's done, get Bren's inner monologue and then get everyone else's inner monologue. And it could be also a neat way to bring Bren a little bit up to speed. It depends also on what Constantine does. Is he going to leave Bren unconscious in the caverns or is he going to be carrying him with him? Because if he's carrying him as they go looking for a sacrifice, then obviously one of the things that we have to deal with is when he wakes up, the exchange between uh, likely Constantine Mir and a newly awoken Bren. Normally this is the point in the podcast where I talk about what I think is going to be awesome and what I think has the potential to be challenging, but I don't know that that applies here. I think the key challenge here is that, similar to what I'm saying with Voss being trapped, I think that stands as an analogy for the entire scenario. There is the physical trap, but it's absolute. There's no roles. I suppose if the party was high enough level to have something like a Dispel Magic, I would allow it for sure. But the party isn't high enough level to have anything at their disposal that could possibly defeat this ancient, ancient ward. It literally comes down to a choice. The character is physically trapped by a mystic ward, and you may say that is the issue. That is not the issue. Characters trapped by their own choice. They have to decide if they're going to double down on that choice, kill something, whether innocent or not. Because one of the questions asked was, is it evil to do this? And I would say, depending on how you go about it, it might be neutral to sacrifice a living being so that you can survive especially a sentient one. But regardless of who or what that being is, I refuse to allow that to be called good. I don't think you can say you're good and kill something that is helpless before you. I'm very open to the concept of that being neutral, because as Mike playing Constantine pointed out, they have killed a lot of things, a lot of sentient things. They've done it in battle, and we as a culture and a society seem to find that okay. Furthermore, as a culture and a society, we kill and eat things all the time that are helpless before us. They just happen to not be sentient, as we define it. So there is this moral ambiguity, and that's at the center of this entire session. It's about choices. Probably the biggest pitfall is that some folks, they don't want to play that in their role-playing games. And I've been in that scenario where I was just looking to have a good time fighting and killing guys, and then in front of you comes up this real moral quandary. So you have to be wary of that. You really do. Of course, to a lot of folks, this may sound like an awesome scenario to have orchestrated, and that's mostly where I'm falling, right? I see the huge potential for this to be a campaign-defining moment in every great way you can imagine. But if it doesn't play off well, if anyone comes to the table with a lot of preconceived notions, as, as folks can do through no fault of their own, then a scenario like this can be one that can only be academically positive. From a drama standpoint, 
everything we're doing should be working, but will it at the table? And that's probably my biggest concern with a scenario like this. We all approach these things as a bit of an outlet, and everyone wants to have fun, and they do want to fight and kill stuff. And if we play this right, we'll get to do that, but you know, we only get to have dessert after we eat our vegetables in this case. God, that's a terrible analogy. I do not want my game to be like eating your vegetables. I did say this was a warts and all type of scenario, and these are the things that run through my mind as I'm preparing for game sessions. All that being said, I have done a lot to prepare people for this. Everyone knew this was what we were getting ourselves into at the end of last session. They're all aware that at the top of the order will be this moral quandary, and I'm going to be sending out this email ahead of time to prepare them for their monologue. That's probably the thing I'm most excited to see how that plays out. That's kind of a cool potential um, storytelling tactic in the game. How can we give you a platform to be your character, to express your character's point of view so that the other writers in the writer's room of the game can hear where you're going with all of this and use that information to create further scenes and interactions and drama. This has been Anatomy of a Campaign. If you're enjoying the podcast and you'd like to help out at all, the absolute best thing that you can do is give us a review on iTunes. At this point, just looking to elevate the profile of the audio journal and get some other folks listening in. As always, you can reach out on Twitter at Anatomy Camp, or you can go to the Podbean website. You should see the link in the description and leave us a comment. Or you can reach me directly by email at phil at campaignanatomy.com. As ever, thanks for listening.